welcome back to Ramen FM, where we discuss stories, tactics, and actionable insights that will help you take your bootstrap startup to Ramen Profitable and beyond. Today, we have a very special guest, Dominic Mon. Dominic is the founder of Mentor Cruise, the go-to marketplace to find a career coach or mentor. They help career professionals turn their knowledge into a marketable coaching business and also make it possible for mentees to find a perfect mentor with just a few clicks. Dom's now making 25K per month. We'll dig into his journey to get there, the unique challenges of scaling marketplaces, his many prior projects to Mentor Cruise and much more. So without further ado, let's get into this one. So just to start out, can you just tell us a little bit more about your background, how you first got into entrepreneurship and building products in the first place? So, you know, I've wanted to start a business or or run something like this pretty much as far as I can remember. And so I have a history of like building small little projects and and launching them and like being part of the the indie hacker community. But Metacruise actually ended up being one of the first ones that I've ever built. And the, the background is a little bit that I have a mostly self-taught background in engineering and also machine learning engineering later on. And so I was always very reliant on course platforms and, and kind of these self-studying platforms like Coursera and, and Udacity. And so the, the thing that I appreciated most, especially about Udacity, was the mentorship aspect because you had someone there that was able to help you through that self-teaching and also was able to provide some connections and, and stuff like that. And so I really liked that aspect. What I didn't like is that after the three months of taking that course, you would also lose access to that mentor. So usually like you learn about a certain topic, you have a mentor, which is very useful. And then you start actually looking for jobs and like getting into the nitty gritty difficult stuff, you would actually lose access to that mentor. And so the idea for Mentor Crew is right at the start was just basically an additional resource to people that do a lot of self-learning and self-teaching to be able to like book a mentor for that journey and have someone there that's that's consistent so that was the the initial use case uh, and kind of where we started obviously since then it's grown into a very different area different niches and a lot more skills than just i'm going to say like machine learning or engineering itself for sure sure i remember seeing a bunch of kind of mentorship or micro consulting platforms over the years but yours was one of the the first ones that I think got the model right that remembered that it's about building a long-term relationship. Like people don't really get useful right. until they get to you, to know you after, you know, sometimes a few sessions. Like I think there's one called Clarity FM where you just, it was like pay as you go, like pay by the minute to like call up someone who had some kind of expertise. And yeah, it's just not the reality of like <laughs> how people want to use these things. I don't think there's that relationship aspect big as well i reckon don't you think yeah definitely it's also there's another big player more in the coding space which is called code mentor and that was actually around like way before i even started mentor cruise i think that's been around for like something like 10 years now and same same model i think they charge by the minute or maybe by every 15 minutes or something like that and so that was my consideration as well right at the beginning okay i don't have the mentor from from like udacity anymore but i could go over to code mentor but it just feels very forced and kind of weird if you pay someone by the 15 minutes to mentor for you and so from the beginning we've done a much more loose model where you have subscription packages uh, and even at, at the beginning we didn't even have like specify what the subscription packages are for we're just like access to this person which obviously like is a little bit hard to quantify these days we have more specific packages and it's something like you know you could have four calls or two calls per month and then you have a chat with that mentor as well stuff like that for a specific price every month and you just get that little bit of security that like you have this connection they have a yeah kind of an engagement towards you as well you're you're able to work with this person for kind of build out for many months at a time and you have that continuity that you don't have if you pay someone by the 15 minutes or, or minute and you mentioned that mentor cruise is one of the first products you built so have you how long have you been working on it in total do you reckon i actually started kind of with the idea and the early stages at the end of 2017 mm-hmm. and i launched it at some point early 2018 so we're actually coming on towards five years now and obviously at the beginning, as I was kind of hinting towards not really not really serious, it was a side project. I just kind of had this resource of a couple of mentors there that you could book if you're like self-teaching or whatever. And it was also like my definitely my first serious thing that I built. And so I had no idea what to do about marketing, how to how to grow the thing. And I also probably struggled to see just because I didn't have experience with it. I struggled to see whether there's any like promise and potential behind it. 
And so I went on to like build other things. I was very much uh, kind of part of the 12 startups in 12 months group. Even though I never did that specifically, I was definitely like looking to try out different things. I have a blog post about that. I ended up building 13 side projects, uh, many of which I've shut down, some of which I've sold, and one of which became my my full-time job, which is Metricruise. What made you decide to lean into that of all the other projects? Was it purely passion or was there anything else that caused it? Um, I think the potential got very obvious when you know i did i was able to to work on it over the years and i did always like implement new things and i I changed pricing and so on and really kind of the deciding factor was when COVID started that was like march or april 2020 so i had been on it for like two years already on and off obviously and i did a big, big big pricing change i also got some very prominent mentors on the platform including arvid call and, and rosie sherry who have like this huge network and huge reach right and then covid happened and so a lot of people got laid off and kind of that that mentorship resource what was exactly what was needed at that time because people were laid off or at least didn't have the job security as before anymore so they were looking to mentor and also people were in careers that were maybe impacted by COVID. And so they were looking to transition into tech and other places. And so we got a lot of mentees as well. So that was kind of the the legendary few months where Mentor Cruise jumped from, I'm going to say something like four to $500 to something like 3K to 4K per month. And then, you know, it's kind of like a, a fist to the face. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of potential here. And I should probably focus on this in, ex, instead of my $100, $200 MRR projects that are going on elsewhere. Yeah, makes total sense. And well, I've never launched a marketplace. I've read enough about them to know that they're very different to running a SaaS. There's certain sp- very specific dynamics that they have. Kind of like, you know, running a community is very different as well. Or there's less software involved. Do you reckon you can touch a little bit on like how you approach getting the supply, the mentors versus the demand or the mentees? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the the problem with marketplaces and just a huge disclaimer, I didn't know any better. Like marketplaces <laughs> were kind of the holy grail for me when I I didn't you know have any other reference. It's probably not the best business model, at least if you're like not looking to raise a huge amount of money. But I did it anyway. I was looking at the Ubers and Airbnbs on, of this world, and, and this was kind of what I was striving for. And so you run into the, the chicken and egg problem where you have a supply side and a demand side, and either one doesn't get value without the other side. So it's kind of deciding, yeah, which side are you able to fill up first so you can fi- start filling up the other side. And for me, this was the mentor side. The mentors, when they were listed on the platform, that's no additional work for them. They're probably not even mentoring in anywhere else so whatever comes through mentor cruise is just a bonus and also if you have mentors that are like really experienced have a flashy name maybe some followers and on twitter on linkedin obviously that also attracts the other side so i kind of leaned in on that 100 before launch even that was 2017 2018 i typed out something like a thousand cold dms and emails to mentors uh-huh. just trying to like get their opt-in to the the platform and to see if they would be interested in mentoring and I did, it might have been more than a thousand to be fair, but I, I remember I ended up with a mailing list of a hundred people that I thought were like a really good fit. And then about a week before launch, I spent way too much time on my MVP. A week before launch, I, I emailed them and said, yeah, you can set up your profile now. And we launched with, I think about 10 mentors from that list of a hundred. And those were the mentors that, that yeah, joined at, right at the beginning, were there for the launch and many of them stayed for many, many years. Some of them are even active today. And they were definitely also, I'm going to say a handful of them were the ones that also got the first mentees in just because they had the network and the followers and yeah, the, the reach to back it up. Was there anything about those cold emails that you found works particularly? Did you experiment at all? We spoke to Valentin of Find Email last time, who's very into cold email, obviously, but just wondering about your take on what constitutes a good cold email. I would say the cold emails weren't very good, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> what I definitely remember is what worked much better than cold email were, was Twitter DMs for me. So I ended up investing a lot of time and effort into that just because you at least have a face there. And probably mm-hmm. at the time I had a couple of hundred followers as well. So that gives you some social proof that you're not just like some scammer or something or someone that tr- tries to sell you something. 
And I also generally didn't want to sell them anything, right? I wanted to help them make some money, basically. Yeah. So that was that was already an easier sell, where I just told them, hey, I have this mentorship platform planned. Here's a couple of screenshots. It would really be cool if you joined this, because I think like a lot of people in your audience would appreciate you being like open to mentorship. And so that was kind of the selling factor, that mentorship is something that a lot of people want to do, especially on, on the mentor side. It's something that kind of provides you a bit of personal branding, you know, lets your leadership skills shine through. And so it's just a, a good offer to also make money with it, especially for people that already do it for free. And so it, it wasn't a hard sell, but it definitely doesn't come down to the quality of my cold emails or cold DMs. It's <laughs> definitely more that the product offering and what I was trying to sell them was really attractive because I didn't try to take their money. I was trying to make them money. So that was that was the good part and probably also helped me actually get that mailing list of 100 because I definitely wasn't and still am not a cold email expert. It was just generally me typing out these messages by hand, no automation or anything, to just try to get them onto this platform. It doesn't even exist yet. Gotcha. So I think what we can learn from that is that when you have like an actually meaningful, relevant offer, it makes things a lot easier. And the word, you know, and you can word that in different ways, but ultimately you can use it as a good offer, right? Yeah. I mean, I, th I think the, the best cold emailers on this world can kind of make everything sound like a really great offer. So that's definitely the art, to, even if you're trying to sell them like a SaaS subscription or something, that you can talk about it in a way and kind of just present it in a way where it's a no-brainer, just a really good offer and not like ask them for money or ask them for any kind of commitment, but actually just provide value. So definitely for me, that was very easy because again, I was just trying to make them money with mentorship, which a lot of people already want to do. If you're trying to sell your SaaS subscription, it's probably like a different level, but definitely the best cold emails I've seen on this world managed to do that as well, even though you're trying to sell like an expensive subscription or something. Great point. And so you bootstraps it with Twitter DMs, cold outreach to get the supply side, the mentors. What did you find really worked to get the demand side or the mentees? Right at the beginning, it was really just the quality of mentors, the fact that they came with a network and, you know, just kind of encouraging them to share that they're available now. So at the beginning, it was very much more of a, you know, the people have been around and would probably have been open to mentoring all along. It's just that we like kind of put the banner on them, which was saying, yeah, I'm available. This is the price that I charge for this, but like book me if you want. And so a lot of people brought the first few mentees from their their networks that was kind of the, the initial flywheel and also what's probably the strength there's a lot of downsides to building a marketplace but this is one of the strengths where if you acquire one side which is usually a little bit easier to acquire than a paying customer they might bring in the paying customers themselves so they do the selling and the marketing for you and that started happening pretty early and then somewhere along the line just got kind of overtaken by actual marketing strategies, which was like SEO at the start, later on email marketing, paid ads, all of that. But even to this day, definitely when we have months where we get more mentors in, we definitely still feel the ripple effect of also more mentees coming in. And also on the other hand, them referring other mentors. So again, it's a little bit of a flywheel and a lot of great network effects where just continued growth drives more growth. And that's a, a really cool place to be in. It's one of those things that it's hard to get to escape velocity, especially when you're, you know, bootstrapping and solo. But once you get past that, everything just yeah. suddenly gets easier and easier as it starts to snowball. Definitely. And I, I think it's it's on and off and it definitely helps if you have a lot of cash to maybe drive that somewhat, somewhat artificially. But still, even on a bootstrap level, you definitely feel it if, for example, recently December is always a very slow month for us just because people don't want to start anything new and like people pause their subscription and stuff. So it's a, it's kind of a, a slow month. And so we always feel the kind of start of the year growth spurt just because now people pull the trigger in January and now people come back and subscribe to new mentors. And it kind of drives the growth for a couple of months just because you, you definitely get like a huge influx of new users in January. So once you get past product market fit, which it looks like you have, and you've got a good marketplace, you've got lots of mentors and mentees being matched and building relationships. Is there a sense of trying to like create a balance between the supply and demand? Because surely there's like an ideal amount of like, like an equilibrium, which is ideal. Because if you have like way more demand than supply, obviously that's not going to be good if they can't find an available mentor and vice versa. Are there any yeah. kind of like levers that you pull to try and like keep that balanced? 
Yeah, that's a great point, actually. I think in marketplaces, there's a lot more metrics that you should look out for rather than just like MRR and, and churn. And one of them is definitely supplier to demand to make sure that you're you're kind of on the same level or that you find your level at least. And that's different for every marketplace, right? Like on, on Airbnb, where you don't have people booking often, but they kind of want to have a large choice of apartments that they can book, you need a very different S&D ratio, which is supply to demand, than like a Uber, where it's like hyper localized, and you just need a ton of different drivers, but you also don't want them to stay idle, right? So you need a ton of, of, of demand as well. And that's definitely the case for us as well. And at times, I think it always scales a little bit at the same time, just because our marketing channels are kind of the same, which is like word of mouth and SEO. So kind of on both sides, we get the same amount of traffic and new leads. But it's definitely happened in the past where we didn't get a lot of new mentees in, but we still got a lot of mentors. And so that kind of gets out of whack. And you start to feel that because people are saying, hey, I'm, I'm suddenly not getting mentees anymore or not as many mentees as I used to. What's happening here? And the, the great part about what we do is we run what's called a vetted marketplace where we actually decide which suppliers come in. So we still do a review for every mentor that applies and we only let people in when we think they can get that demand on the on the marketplace and you know when their profile has enough quality and everything. And also if there's like huge demand for something that we don't quite have yet, we can let more people of those more of those people in. So that's kind of the, the control that we have over that. And right now it's it's very much where I think we have a lot of mentors coming in, but in the last few months, or we have a lot more kind of growing amount of mentors coming in, but the mentees have kind of stayed the same. And so we need to be a bit more like hard on the mentor applications and make sure that we really only let in the people where we think they can drive yeah a lot of growth and kind of bring interest to the marketplace. And that way our supply to demand ratio is about one to one. So we should have about like a mentee for every mentor that's where we naturally landed. And whenever we have like 1.2 mentors for every mentee, we know that it's time to, to restrict things a little bit. And something that I'm sort of envious about of your job is that you get to see like an early look at certain trends in, in terms of the kinds of jobs that people want mentorship for, which ones are growing, which ones are shrinking, that kind of thing. Are there any kind of like interesting trends you're seeing at the moment of stuff that's becoming a bit more popular? Yeah, definitely. I, I try to make like one trendy tweet every like half year or so. And that was actually quite recently when obviously the big topic right now is AI, specifically like prompt engineering, where I'm going to say like two, three years ago, it was data science and machine learning, right? Like people in Python right. hardcore that were trying to train these models. Now it's much more prompt engineering. People want to jump on GPT-3, ChatGPT and co. So that's a big trend. We're also seeing the ultimate decline of crypto, where right. last year, you know, solidity and, and crypto topics and investing was a really big topic and a lot of searches and that completely died this year. Wow. And then maybe interestingly, we also just see a lot of growth in, I'm going to say like humble, stable tech jobs where like data analysis and software architecture, things like that are, are really like growing a lot. Probably, and that's just my hypothesis, driven by like layoffs and just the, the tech industry being a little bit in a decline or in a soft decline. And now people are looking to move away from kind of more flashy, risky jobs to stuff that's really like in demand and has a lot of open jobs. So people are looking more into, yeah, again, data analysis, just web development, backend development, software architecture, things like that. So that's the, the trends I'm seeing at the moment. That's super interesting. And do you have any people who can are advising on prompt engineering and writing prompts yet? Really, really hard to find, given that <laughs> it's like a thing that's been invented in the last three months. What I would say is we have people that, you know, have a long natural language background and have worked a lot with like LLMs, which is are the large language models, including people that have worked on LLMs as the, the engineer. And so I think they just naturally have good prompt engineering skills because they've probably been there like six months to a year before everyone else. But I definitely, I'm, I'm not sure whether anyone's like specializing on prompt engineering specifically, but I definitely imagine or I'm going to see some like GPT-3 or chat GPT tags in like listed skills of a couple of people. I'm pretty sure that's either happening right now or coming soon that people really like spend a lot of time with these models to the point where they're saying, yeah, I'm an expert with it. I would consider myself being able to help others. 
it wouldn't surprise me. There's a guy I follow on Twitter called Javi Lopez, and he's experimented a lot with mid-journey prompts. And he he had a, pop, a popular ebook on just like amazing examples of mid-journey prompts that he'd done. Just there must be a bunch of these guys experimenting who are probably going to end up on something like that. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me at all. And I probably would be a customer. Yeah, there's definitely a gold rush happening as well. Where and probably people are more so selling the shovels. Where Gumroad is like full with ebooks on prompt engineering for GPT three <laughs> for mid journey for stable diffusion for everything. So definitely people are are already trying to capitalize on it. What will be interesting to see whether there's like actual experts that are like a level beyond anyone else because I think AI and machine learning has become so accessible. Where probably if you sit down with like the Chat GPT terminal for a week. It's probably gone like you're gonna figure some stuff out and probably you can read a couple of tutorials and you're gonna get like pretty cool results from it. I wonder what like the real experts can do that spend months and months on ChatGPT and just like know this thing inside out. That'll be quite interesting to see. I wanna come back to this topic a bit later because you actually were a machine learning engineer, so you actually know more about this than most people. But I do wanna actually ask you about something slightly different for now, which is back to kind of the marketplaces of mechanics, but just like deciding on how to charge people so once i read a book on marketplaces and i was shocked by the number of different ways marketplaces make money because they can charge the demand side they can charge the supply side they can charge both they can charge them in different ways like a cut of the transaction or like per introduction or all these different things they can offer obviously do subscription models like was it obvious to you like the best way to position this for mental crews from the beginning or do you have to experiment together to be honest we kind of started with the take rate such as like taking a cut of the the fee on on anything from the beginning and it's definitely changed over the years the biggest change was that at the beginning we took a cut i think it was 15 percent back then where we just said yeah whatever you make like you set your price to a hundred dollars for your package we're going to take 15 percent and it's kind of the standard way right and one change that we did, was, which was actually quite interesting, is we told people, you can charge $100, um, and we're not going to take a cut, but publicly we're going to show it as 120 And what happened is the mentees don't mind because you don't really know kind of which cut goes to the mentor and which goes to the mentee anyways, as long as it's like not a huge Airbnb-style cleaning fee. So no back- <laughs> backlash from there. But the mentors actually had a much better time because they weren't feeling anymore like they were getting a cut in their profits or in their in their earnings but just like that there was a fee somewhere on top but they get their hundred dollars so it's kind of fine by them as well and the nice kind of counter thing is also that we just increase the average order value by like 20 percent as well because now we're not taking a cut anymore we're actually increasing all the prices with our fee and so that was kind of the biggest experiment that we did with that was more like psychology rather than than anything else and it's it's never really been for for me it's never been an option to like charge mentors to list or i know that there are also some of our competitors charge for just like access to the mentors in the first place like access to the community for us it's always been easiest to just kind of align the incentives where we have the goal to like protect mentees as good as possible have as great many mentors as possible to the point where like we're not doing any refunds or a lot of like unsatisfied customers and we're only earning money when our mentors earn money and so i think that aligns kind of the incentive quite well that being said not sure whether it's ever going to change in the future there's definitely been interest now that we have like over 2000 or 2500 mentors on the platform where people said yeah i would chip in a little bit of money if you're going to feature me for for a week or like i would love to book like google ads to this profile instead of like yeah just waiting for people to come through so i think if the demand is there we might try it out but at the moment i'm quite happy which is like taking this cut in the middle our mentors make much more money than we do but it's just kind of a, a very cool feeling to be able to provide that value 100 percent, yeah aligning incentives sounds like the r- right way to do it that psychological approach reminds me of being a little of like direct to consumer companies they sell goods with they just increase the price then say it's free shipping so there's no shipping that they pay for kind of thing right it's just kind of like reframing like how people are paying can make a big difference then right 
Yeah, yeah, it definitely works. Like if I if I go on e-commerce store and they have free shipping, I don't really care that all the prices are are ten percent higher. It just feels good that it's free shipping. It's like one less worry. And so, yeah, kind of thinking the same where we don't take any fees, like we don't show any fees that are added on top or taken away to the customer. It's just this package is 120 and somewhere in the middle we take our cut and everyone's okay with it. And the mentor gets their $100 and they're okay with it as well. So it's just kind of, we, we found this way that makes everybody happy, which is quite rare, but really exciting to be in that place. For sure, for sure. And so we've talked on this podcast before about London ramen profitable versus other places like, you know, obviously more expensive places require more revenue for you to survive. So what's your journey being like right. living in Switzerland, which is a notoriously expensive country? Like I imagine Zurich's not the cheapest city. What's your kind of journey been transitioning from having a tech job into full-time on mental crews like did you just like wait until you grew the revenue to a certain amount to quit or was there some other approach what did you do yeah that's a great question so zurich is is very expensive i think it's among the maybe top three of most expensive cities so it's not a great place to be a bootstrapper and trying to start a business but it was also kind of an interesting place to be just because i had to push like a level further to be able to go full-time and so Definitely the first thoughts came after that like big rush in, in 2020 when we got to like three or four K MRR. That was like the first thought was like, oh, I could maybe go full time on this. I would just have to like tap into savings. 2020, I was like 22 years old. So the savings weren't great, but and like my, my rent would have made up half of it, but it would definitely be like very much ramen profitable. And that's where I decided I'm not going to do that. I'm probably going to, yeah, I'm going to keep it as a side project or you know, at that time was like a part-time job more so. And when I go full-time, I'm going to make it like a great try with, you know, not being like super stressed and overwhelmed. And I did that by already hiring people, even though I wasn't full-time yet. So even when I was working full-time and had Metro Cruise as a part-time gig, I already had a customer supporter. I already had a part-time dev and someone to help out in marketing. Just, you know, so I have some stuff that's off my plate. And then as far as actual salary goes, I, I ended up pushing quite a bit further than I imagined, but I didn't aim to like replace my big tech salary. I ended up, once I went full time, I ended up reducing my pay by like 30, 40%. And that landed me right at like chicken katsu curry profitable instead of ramen profitable, I would say. <laughs> like a little bit of like being able to 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 save some money and also to travel a little bit to still have like a fairly comfortable life but definitely like no big savings or anything and definitely no big spending it's just like covers everything in a comfortable way so that was kind of what i was aiming for and once that was reached also with the people that i already had hired that was kind of a good time to to go full-time katsu curry profitable i like that you know, I like Katsu Curry anyway. You know, when you were doing this, like, you know, obviously you were still working, a tech job. You'd hired people to help build the platform. And then obviously you went full time. But like, how has your kind of approach to productivity changed from when you were part time to full time? Or have there been like kind of principles mm -hmm. that were there throughout? Definitely, I think principles throughout. It also was like my last job before before going full time was at Todoist or at Doist. So very much like a productivity focused person. And I had, I would say, like productivity methods since the start, just like being able to plan out my day. I tried to like loosely follow some systems, like getting things done is one of them. And I definitely did that when I was doing it part time as and now as well. I think the only thing that's changed is now I have a mo lot more longevity in the sense that just before I went full time, I would like wake up at 6 a.m. I would work until like 9 then I would change over to to Doist. I would work my full time there. And then at like 7, 8 p.m., I would like wrap up for another two, three hours of, of Mentor Cruise. So I, I did have like three or four hours per day, definitely on, on Mentor Cruise. So, you know, wrap that up. You're coming down to like a good 80 hour week or something like that. So, so definitely not very sustainable. And I definitely felt it like dragging on me and just like, yeah, there was not much creativity left. And yeah, definitely was getting onto the road to burnout, I would say. And that's different now. I would still say I work like a good 50 hour week, something like that, maybe a little bit more sometimes, but 
it it feels right now just because I'm, I'm having fun and I enjoy what I'm working on and there's very little stress. I feel like I could do it forever this way. And that's the big difference. I definitely couldn't have done it forever in that kind of part-time setting. Yeah, because burnout isn't necessarily just about the number of hours you work. It's also about enjoying the work that you have, right? Because it sounds like there's almost no hours you could not work because you enjoy it so much now. Yeah, definitely. I, I don't think that the hours are, are so much a problem. It's, yeah, it's, it's really like the stress, the fact that you have kind of stuff that comes in from your side project, which at that time was a part-time job, I think, that you kind of have to keep in the back of your mind and that you know, okay, tonight I'm going to have to work on that. And also, also just, I think, takes a big toll on creativity. I think you probably have like four or five peak productivity hours every day. And so you should just because I think that's the right thing to do. You should spend most of these on, on like the full-time job that pays your bills and everything. But that means you end up on your, your side project or startup and you just like don't really know in which direction to go. And I think that's probably the big part where if you're losing sense of direction and motivation and like you're, you don't have a creative job anymore, it's just all transactional and kind of processing things. That's when you probably burn out pretty quickly just because you you don't get this the fun side of things anymore. And to what extent do you plan out what you're going to be working on? For example, do you do like a marketing week and coding week or marketing day and coding day? Or is it a bit more kind of fluid than that these days? Yeah, try to plan it out kind of in this way. I have a coding day and a, and a marketing day. And I have this like huge list and to do is just of things that I have to do. And so that's kind of my evening routine to, to plan out what I'm going to do on the next day. I'm using the, the getting things done method where you're like putting a couple of things at priority one. And that's like the stuff that you absolutely need to do no matter what happens. Like even if you're sick, you need to do them. And then you have like priority two, which is kind of work that you, that you need to get done. And it's like going to drive you forward to your goals. And then P3 is more like good to have stuff like that. And I try to plan in everything like that. Anything from like answering my emails to to whatever. Also like life, life stuff and like having to go grocery shopping or whatever. So I try to have my kind of life planned out in, in, in Todoist or another to-do app. I, I try to make that pretty freely. But the only restriction I have is that Tuesdays and Thursdays for me are, are coding days. And it's a little bit different from... I think the majority of bootstrappers and, and indie hackers where I think, especially when you come from a coding background, a lot of people code every day. And so they need a marketing week or marketing days to force themselves to actually do some marketing for the thing and not just like build features all the time. I'm definitely on the other hand of the spectrum where I just need like at least two afternoons where I can have full focus on like building out features and like doing pretty difficult engineering tasks. And that are those are Tuesdays and Thursdays for me where it's my coding day. I'm not going to do any marketing. I'm going to try to get like through my emails and a bunch of like just admin stuff in the morning. And then I basically just code for like at least six hours or something like that. And that helps me just because I'm still the only backend developer on my team. And I just have like deep exp expertise on the billing system and like a couple of database stuff things like that that helps me to at least have like two half days where i'm just coding and like i'm not checking my emails i'm not taking calls it's blocked on my calendar i have full focus on on coding and getting things done getting things done i'm gonna check out that framework one i've heard of a lot before but yes yeah, it's, it's good to get a check mark from you dom for sure so you talked a lot about the categories of um, marketing and and building which you know i hear a lot but are there any other kind of are those like for you the two like major things obviously there's other stuff involved but like are, is there are there any other categories which you put at the same priority level as those two yeah i mean the, the thing is there's also just stuff that has to get done which i would call like admin stuff which is getting through my emails signing on on stuff paying people whatever that definitely becomes part of it and just like talking with people managing people like assigning tasks and stuff like that my marketing days you know, I call them marketing days, but they're also a little bit like everything else days where, I mean, you can classify as you want, but like cold emailing and stuff like that, it's it's more like sales, I guess. And then I have like maybe partnership calls, which you could call more like business development instead of marketing. So it's a lot more various. I think the gist of it is I'm trying to like grow the business during those days, whereas the coding days are more about like 
usability platform, actual product. And those other days are more like, yeah, getting the, the product forward, getting the business forward, making money, growing the business itself. So I call it marketing, but the tasks vary quite a bit. Anything from like actually publishing SEO blog posts, which are probably marketing and reviewing paid ads to having like a partnerships call, doing a podcast, stuff like that. Where would you say user research fits into that? Does that kind of fit into the other bucket of everything else? Or is research part of one of those other yeah. two things? Yeah. One one thing that I have, I just call it kind of product work, where I'm doing like discovery, user research, even though like user research is, is kind of embedded into everything I do because like I have mm. emails going out to users automatically. So I'm spending a lot of time also when I'm doing emails, talking to users, but I definitely have like product work that I'm doing every few weeks where I'm like doing discovery and collecting data about a certain topic and like scheduling out tasks and stuff like that. It just comes down to like how much we can get done. I think what's nice is that we that we kind of built a, yeah, almost a culture where we just kind of try to discover and like have an open mind at all times. So we have like a huge list of ideas and like quotes that we're collecting from users and from support and from our like, community Slack channel and stuff like that. So there's always an endless list of ideas. And so more of the product work is then like scheduling these. We're trying out like different ways how to how to set these up, like opportunity solution trees and fancy stuff like that, where we're like trying to build out some ideas. And then, you know, the more project management part to actually schedule these and, and see when we have time to do them. So that's definitely also part where like anything that's not technical and requires me to be in a quiet room and like code for a couple of hours without interruption, that kind of goes into the, the non-coding days or marketing days, if you so will. I get the sense that you've got quite an organized approach to entrepreneurship generally, which is a great thing. And that kind of reminds me of, I think you said before, a big influence on you was the book built to sell which i think talks about just like from a very early stage having like quite good operating procedures so you're easy to sell later on and that kind of thing why do you think this had such an impact on you what's like the main message from it it, it was really a book that impacted me quite a bit and i think it comes down to just the idea of optionality and what i'm seeing a lot is kind of people that build businesses that can't run without them and so they're always kind of a core part of the business and it definitely needs them to to run the business and i think it's like the greatest way to get to burnout and lose lose excitement on your on your job and on your business because if if you get online and you get pinged by a dozen people and you need to like be hands on with every single project if you don't have the choice anymore of what you actually want to do i think it's just not very exciting and and build to sell obviously it's in the sense of building a business that you can sell and that's like going to bring in the most money but it's not even so much that for me, other than that I have the option to walk away or take a vacation or like take a break from it. And so I'm really trying to like build a business that's built on those principles, because if I want to like come visit you guys in London and maybe it's just not a very, a very productive week because I'm there with friends and everything, I should have the option to do that because everything that's kind of daily and needs my input is, is automated or has someone else that's responsible for them. So I think that's more the impact rather than just like getting the most money for the business at some point. That makes total sense. And kind of leading into that, you think this is, you know, the right way to go about a business. What are some like common mistakes that you see typical bootstrap founders and indie hackers making that you think those are just things that you should always avoid? I think anything that puts you on a schedule is kind of annoying. So anything where you need to come online and like do a specific thing for your business to run, that just means that you can never get sick, that you can never take a break, never take a, a long vacation. And I think that's just, yeah, not very satisfactory. So if you do like, I think the most common thing are like agencies and service businesses where you're the main account manager. And so you need to kind of be on top on everyone and check in with everyone. Like that's, that's a pretty annoying business and i think also it comes down to doing busy work if you actually come online and do your work are you able to work on the most effective thing can you make the most impact on what you want to do or is it just like you need to come online because you have like bugs to fix or you have like emails to answer because you're doing all the customer support by yourself like as soon as it's not 
effective and efficient anymore, I think you should try to to hand it off. And probably the mistake that people do is that they feel like they can't hand it off or they just never do. But definitely, I would encourage even early stage indie hackers to like hire the stuff out that takes most of the time away from them. And that was, I think for me, it was very important because I had my full-time job for such a long time where it was just not feasible for me to spend like an hour or two on customer support every morning. That would have just taken too much of my actual work time. So it was from the beginning, I kind of had the mindset whenever I spend too much time on something that's not really effective for the business, I should probably try to hire it. I think you can hire much earlier than you probably think you can. So when you're thinking about these kind of systems that you want to outsource in some way, whether that's through technology or hiring or even just removing them completely, is there like a system you have for kind of defining these systems and prioritizing them and how you should solve them (laughs) kind of thing? No, not really. I think what it comes down to is like writing down a lot of things that you do so you can pass it on. Definitely whenever like I hire someone they probably will start doing something that I did before. And so I just like, I should at least have some guides and maybe like a a long loom recording of me doing the thing so they can follow. And then I think the second thing comes down to just like hiring really good people. And I definitely did made a lot of mistakes with that where you don't have to handhold them all the time. Like they can, they can take your system and that, you know, something that you've done before, but they can, you know, make their own spin on it. They they have their own expertise. And so you don't need to handhold them all the time. And I think that's f- for a business, like a bootstrap business, where you may be also like a bit on a time crunch. The, the most important part is that you don't hire people and then you're just like micromanaging all, them all the time. And that I think happens a lot if you just hire the, the wrong people. You need someone that can like lead the thing and do it better than you in the best case. And in the next three years or so, what's your kind of vision for where you see Mentor Cruise at that point? Is it basically mainly about selling to businesses directly more? Is it more than that? What, what would you describe it as? You know, I'm not sure what my vision is for the next six months uh, <laughs> than, than three years, but I would definitely like to see like mentorship and coaching being a bigger part of our lives. And I think, yeah, a great part for that is to to go into the business sphere. I've definitely seen it there happen a lot more. So I think it should be an option for everyone. As you were saying, like if, if you're running a community and it's something you've never done before, you should be able to get like an expert to help you with that. And it should be like affordable enough for you to just kind of take that step. That option should always be available. But also, I think if you're if you're at work, and I think like Fortune 100 companies have this figured out, where like 97 of the Fortune 100 companies have a very strict mentorship program, where like everyone coming in has a mentor and like some support system around you, and I think that's that's going to be more important as time goes with just like us being remote workers, companies going more flexible. We have like a lot more contractors and freelancers around there's like four day work week and everything it's just going to be so much harder to have like a good support system and like a good growth system around you where i think like mentorship is really the, the thing to go where at least you have someone there who knows your your story and your history and can support you along the way for sure and speaking from experience as well like more and more people are becoming freelancers and contractors you know like not just having like one nine to five, they do like multiple things, they might have Definitely. a business, they might freelance as well. And often in that case, you don't actually even have like a line manager sometimes or like a hierarchy right. or even a one-to-one sometimes. And so sometimes you just need to go outside of that organization to get the advice you need. Like that's what I've had to do sometimes in the past. So I can definitely see like it leaning into that trend as well. Definitely, yeah. I, th- I think that's much of the future i'm not sure how we're going to get there as a, as a business like what's the the best way forward but that's definitely the trend i'm seeing as well where i think the the normal nine to five where you have a corporate mentor or no mentor at all it's gonna hopefully be a thing of the past and people are going to have more fluid careers they have a mentor that's maybe not just giving them like corporate stuff but actually helps them like grow their career and grow their you know pre- professional development and yeah, that leans also into like people being more of creators rather than employees. I think the trend's going in that direction. It's a trend that I support and love that it's happening. And I think we can play a part with that, just yeah, with the way that it's going. There's actually something very powerful in getting mentorship from someone that you're paying rather than a mentor who is paying you. 
because you feel like you can actually be more open <laughs> with yeah. one that you're paying and ask them literally anything. But like there might be some things you're scared to ask someone who's your line manager in case it makes you look silly, you know? Yeah. I mean, imagine also just if your own goals don't align with like a corporate goal. If like in my case, if I'm if I'm working in a web dev job and now I want to go into machine learning, I can't tell that my work assigned mentor, right? Like that's just not that would be like backstabbing almost like they, they definitely <laughs> i'm not sure like how many companies would support that and so having someone external that's yeah more kind of discreet or confidential agreement with someone that doesn't have the company's interest in mind but just your own i think that's quite powerful and yeah we'll see how how like companies support this notion it definitely feels like maybe a, a negative for them but we also see just people being genuinely interested in people's like personal development and professional development so hopefully there's a niche for us to tap into i'd love to hear your thoughts on the stuff that's unique to marketplaces that you want to watch out for you know in getting to your goals so we talked a little about a little bit before this podcast side on the recent situation with Flurly and Stripe, how the way they were paying out to some of their creators, it caused a problem which led to them being taken off Stripe. Do you want to just comment a bit about about that and some of the kind of things that you're watching out for as well in the future? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the big difference in marketplaces is that you, you're taking money and you're handling that money on someone else's behalf, and then you're also actually paying that out to someone. And there's a lot of complexities with that. On one hand, once you're handling money from someone that you're trying to like pass on to someone else, you're under a lot of kind of money handler and anti-money laundering laws, which I think just people don't expect really because it's so easy these days to build a SaaS and marketplace is really just like a SaaS with two sides. But it's really more than that. Like there's a lot of legal stuff involved with that. And then also like you're paying out people. So you need to send money often across the world and it's, unexpectedly extremely difficult to get like money from someone in australia through your platform that's in the us and then back to someone in germany for example it's just like we're not quite there yet with the banking systems and everything i would say things are getting better stripe is making great strides with this they have this, the stripe connect system which we also use where it's just like all in the stripe network somewhere and like they have the paper trail and everything and so you don't really need to worry about that and that's not quite available like everywhere in the world, but you can cover like the, the biggest markets with it for sure. But that's definitely an unexpected one that you can't just like take money from someone and then send it over to someone without like any proof, any paper trail or whatever. I think that's exactly how you get like big fines banned from certain systems and so on. But again, it's it's much, much easier than it, it used to be. Definitely Stripe Connect is like a money and lifesaver for a lot of smaller and bootstrapped marketplaces out there. Yeah, it just comes down to like reading up on the rules for maybe a day or two and then implementing the right systems. I think people underappreciate just because you can send information easily anywhere around the world that it's the same with money, but it's much more heavily regulated and complex than people realize. So yeah, yeah there's a lot more issues with this, right? Definitely. Yeah. There's also, you know, what, what Stripe also does is they do know your customer, the KYC yeah. verification on like a seller side. So like somewhere in the Stripe system, they have a full passport or ID card. They have addresses, they have business addresses. And that's just something that you don't really think about when you think, oh, I can just like pay people with PayPal, right? That you actually have no idea who you're paying to. And it's like a welcome target for a scammer to like launder, launder money through your network. And that's really the, the last thing you want to happen to you as a marketplace. So any AI predictions as a current or well, let's say former machine learning engineer, maybe just like pause for now, like what of the current trends are you kind of most interested in and, and any that maybe you're a bit less so? I really love what's going on in the whole AI ecosystem. I would also say it's made my job specifically a bit redundant where my job was for the longest time really like an ml engineer rather than a researcher where i was taking you know i, I don't have an, a background in like math and and data which a lot of the researchers have so a lot of what my job used to be was take data from somewhere usually like somewhere in a business build a model that someone else had already researched and then like train that model and make it do something specific and I think that part of the job 
becomes a lot more accessible now. And I think the job that I used to have is soon going to be a lot of just like software engineers jobs where once you have GPT-3, ChatGPT, Stable Diffusion, MidJourney, and Co., when you have people being able to interact with them either through maybe an API or something, and then also doing like a bunch of prompt engineering, you don't have to have like a a multi-month course and a a bunch of experience in like data handling and stuff anymore. So I think it's definitely moving to like the research side being extremely valuable, like OpenAI and and the people working there are probably among like most in-demand people right now, also creating competition to all of that. And then the actual application side, I think gets, you know, the, the kind of buzzword, but it gets dem- democratized a lot where probably in a team that's full of soft engineers, you should be able to start building AI features. And that was definitely not possible before. I would definitely say my last job at Duist was transformed from actually being like taking taking data and training models and like trying to, to do stuff with that. It was kind of transformed into just being, or just is a, is a good word, but being a a prompt engineer and like a GPT-3 expert. And it was very clear at one point that anyone in the team could do that. And it's probably just in the beginning, a topic of being the expert in the room that has a bunch of experience with like how AI behaves rather than like the actual ML engineer. That's the only one that's allowed to touch GPT and co. I think that's going to be available and part of the toolkit of a lot of engineers in the future. Yeah, I agree that the democratization of being able to train your own custom models is going to be pretty interesting. Like I saw a startup recently called scenario.gg and it's made the user experience of training a model. You just, you literally have to just upload a bunch of images up to a hundred and then you, you basically trained a model. So for example, you can, if you're a game, you can upload a bunch of existing assets and then you can just write prompts and it will spit out like really on brand sort of like great visual assets and that has implications for the branding world so if you're a design agency for example you'll be able to train it on a certain brand and then just like create assets really quickly like that from a more kind of written word kind of training a model i think a lot of community builders like myself are realizing they're just sitting on a pile of training data now of their community's interactions for years which they never really thought about so much and you know, you can make a chatbot for your community that can just like, you know, answer based on previous questions and that kind of thing. And I think there's going to be like all sorts of like interesting, creative applications of this in the future. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Once you give such powerful tech into the, the hands of many people and, you know, not only engineers, but also just like entrepreneurs and people that are happy to to kind of try around and experiment with it, there's always going to be really interesting use case with it. And definitely when you have something as powerful as like a, a chat GPT. Yeah, very interesting. I would say that the only thing that has potential for me is obviously a lot of these products right now are very locked down and kind of under wraps. And for chat GPT, you, you know, it's a paid product or becoming a paid product now. Whereas machine learning for like all the way back until maybe a year ago has been very open. You could like download every network and let just like do stuff with it. And I wonder whether there's going to be more in that direction. I definitely think it might be interesting to have like more access to a chat GPT. For example, have like an updated version that can access or like research on the internet, for example. I think that would be the next step once like chat GPT and co is, is open source or at least more accessible in some way that you once again have developers and maybe people that are more affine with the tech being able to like push it to the next level and even like enable more use cases. But for now... It's great to just have access to this for for everyone, definitely. It's fascinating to see how this is all going to play out, for sure. So, Dominic, I want to ask you one last question. So, if you had to summarize your advice to founders just in a sentence, what's the last thing you would say? Stay consistent. Work on your project or product every single day, even though if you're tired or don't really want to. I think that's most important. Stay focused. Don't think too big don't think too small and surround yourself with great people that keep you motivated and accountable awesome love that really enjoyed this conversation dom i had a great time yeah thank you for having me